Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking here on Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. We are continuing to examine the immensely important results of the 2022 elections here in New York and beyond, as well as how those elections have shifted the political and policy landscape in New York politics and national politics both immediately and into the future. In just a few weeks, at the turn of the year, Kathy Hochul will be inaugurated as governor for the first time for a full term of her own, the first woman to ever hold the position. Now she's the first woman to ever be elected to the position and the Democratic governor who's been in office since the resignation of Andrew Cuomo in August 2021 will now have her own first full term. The next state legislature will be seated in Albany, of course, with a 150 assembly members and 63 state senators, Democrats continuing to hold, if not super majorities, very close in both chambers. And the next U.S. Congress will take office in Washington, D.C. And that, of course, is where national attention has been on New York, where Republicans did better than expected not only in U.S. House races, but pretty much across the board in New York, even though Hochul won her election, it was by a far narrower margin than Democratic nominees have done in the past several elections since Democrats took control of the governor's office after Republican George Pataki's three terms. In the U.S. House, seats in New York have proved to be in one way of looking at it, the margin for Republicans to retake the majority by a very narrow margin in the House of Representatives. And there are a lot of fingers being pointed all around New York and beyond about why Democrats underperformed here. And that contribution to the flipping of the House, which was expected before Democrats had a very good election nationally overall, with the exception of a few places, including New York. So the 2022 elections in New York have sent some shockwaves across the country. There's been a lot of questions about the leadership of the New York State Democratic Party here. There's been a lot of praise of Republicans for some of the campaigns they ran, starting with gubernatorial nominee Lee Zeldin, who is now apparently angling to perhaps take over the Republican National Committee as chair there. So a lot of moving pieces. We've been hosting a series of shows here at Max Politics on the aftermath of the election with a variety of perspectives. So you can find those other episodes after you listen to this one. I've had a lot of great guests giving their views on what happened in the elections and what comes next. Some uh, variety of Democratic perspectives, Republican perspective from city council minority leader Joe Borelli, and much more. Today, we are continuing to break down the election results and look ahead, and we're focusing in on one of the most interesting and important trends of the last few years in New York that appears to have accelerated in the elections that just finished here. That is the movement of Asian American voters away from Democrats and towards Republicans. This trend has been seen, for example, in last year's mayoral race, where Republican nominee Curtis Sliwa did very well in Asian majority or plurality election districts, assembly districts, city council district areas of the city. There was movement towards Republicans in a few city council districts overall, and Sliwa overperformed expectations in a number of Asian American communities. We've seen that again here 
in this election in 2022 with Zeldin's performance in the gubernatorial race in New York City. And it resulted in seemingly some of the shifts in assembly seats in the city where Democratic incumbents were defeated by Republican challengers, in some cases not very well known, but it seemed that voters, including a large number of Asian American voters, were voting Republican all the way down the ballot, with some exceptions. Now, my guest today is Assemblymember Ron Kim. He's a Democrat who represents a district in Queens that is uh, based in, in Flushing and surrounding neighborhoods, I should say. Uh, not that we'll get too much into this, but I, I grew up in the Whitestone and Flushing area, so I know the know the district well. Uh, but uh, Ron Kim held on to his seat by a very narrow margin here in this election in a district that Lee Zeldin beat Kathy Hochul in in the governor's race. We saw a very close race in the new 17th state Senate district in Brooklyn, where Ewen Chu will become the first Asian American woman ever elected to the state Senate, and she will take office in January in that new legislature. But she won a very narrow race in what was drawn in redistricting after the U.S. Census as an Asian opportunity district. And she was able to prevail there, again, outrunning Governor Hochul at the top of the Democratic ticket by a wide margin. Ewen Chu, the Democrat, winning over her Republican opponent. But some of the nearby assembly races were decided in favor of Republicans. So there's a lot to dissect here as Asian Americans are the fastest growing demographic group in New York City and also becoming an increasing focus, but maybe not enough of politicians. So let's bring on my guest today. Assemblymember Ron Kim has a lot of thoughts on what Democrats need to be doing to either keep Asian American voters or win them back, and broader thoughts on the New York political and policy landscape. Assemblymember Kim, thank you for joining me. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me back on, Ben. So um, we'll get into a lot of specifics, but let's start in uh, just very broadly on what your perspective is on what happened with Asian American voters in New York City in the 2022 elections, again, as I said, sort of continuing, accelerating a trend that we've been seeing in these last couple of election cycles here. But broadly speaking, from your perspective, what what did you see here? Yeah, I mean, we've seen the signs for many years. Um, I think it really started to pick up under the former mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio. I mean, when I was knocking on some of these doors, uh, under when he was mayor, people were more upset at what he was doing over Donald Trump. These are Democrats, uh, Asian American Democrats uh, that are living in my district, and we're seeing that all across the city. Um, and there, there's a deep-seated frustration where they're feeling now Asian Americans are feeling economically and physically unsafe in New York City and other cities around the country. It does seem, and you know, this is interesting because the the campaign that Mayor Eric Adams ran as a Democrat uh, last year was in many ways very different sort of, you know, uh, response to the de Blasio years. Once he won the primary, it seemed all but certain that he was going to win the general election. Nobody really thought Curtis Sliwa would ever win, but Adams was running on public safety at the top of the list. 
He was not supportive of some of the education changes that Asian American, many Asian American voters, I shouldn't shouldn't at all uh, say all, but many Asian American voters were opposed to. Uh, you're getting at some of that under the de Blasio administration, sort of late in the administration, especially moves around gifted and talented programs, uh, a longstanding view about changing admissions to the city's specialized high schools. And Eric Adams was was against that, but Asian American voters still went for Republican Curtis Lewa in big in bigger numbers. Are you seeing a trend where you think right now there's a lot of Asian American voters in New York City who are simply just fed up with Democrats writ large and don't feel like Democratic policies are helping keep them safe? Uh, they just aren't aligning on a lot of education issues. How are you seeing sort of the broader view of Asian American voters about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. You obviously won your reelection here. Uh, as I said, Ewan Chu won this new state Senate district, but these are by very, you know, pretty, pretty to very narrow margins. Um, so what's going on broadly in terms of feelings about the two big parties? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it started with the former mayor around education policies. Even, even the last couple of months before Bill de Blasio left, he was trying to tweak education policies without any input from the community. It started it and, in, and it, it kind of spiraled into the Eric Adams election where this was more of a protest vote against Bill de Blasio mm -hmm. um, against against Eric Adams. I mean, it just, um, and, it, and it just continued on from there where we haven't tried uh, enough to regain the trust of the Asian American communities. I think the reason why Ewan Chu and I were successful because she and I both leaned in um, hard on working immigrant communities needs. And there's there's working Asian professionals and professionals who feel like our concerns, our plights, and our needs are not being met by the Democratic Party. Um, and whether when we, when we talk about public safety, our voices are either reduced or ridiculed by political establishments. And these are working class Asian Americans that should be part of uh, the Democratic Party, but we feel left out. Mm -hmm. Is there um, is there a way in which? Democrats need to speak to those concerns and uh, predominantly Asian American communities or Asian American neighborhoods, uh, voters, in a way that is breaking from the larger sort of Democratic uh, platform and agenda? Or is it about paying more attention to those voters in those communities in a in a way, um, you know, that that says, I we're, we are hearing you and here's what we're doing in response, but it's aligned with the democratic, uh, you know, sort of broader democratic vision. Um, does there need to be more of a break in certain communities and neighborhoods and representatives who are voting different ways on different policies? How do you see that that sort of shaking out here? Because we're seeing a little bit of this in a few other communities as well, a few other demographic groups. You have the Orthodox Jewish community, you have uh, a shift from a number of Latino voters towards Republicans as well on some of these same concerns, especially public safety and educational concerns. Um, how is it that elected officials representing Asian American communities need to be thinking about sort of the broader democratic policy agenda and how to either shape that or break away from that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the larger democratic institutions they need to accept the truth that Asian Americans in New York City are living in higher uh, poverty rates than any other racial groups. Uh, Asian older adults suffer from the most severe mental health problems um, like depression, anxiety than other racial groups. There is deep poverty trauma in our community, and so far, the only institutional answer we're providing. Uh, are struggling working Asian constituents is more nonprofit services or more policing. There is a giant gap between the outcomes produced by Asian nonprofits and the city's police department. Uh, and many Asian Americans are falling through this crack. Um, and the Democratic Party has not stepped in to connect these dots and figure out how to resolve uh, the declining social conditions that many Asian Americans are not suffering from. I want to come back to some of some of what you just said there on the correct me if I'm wrong here. The conventional wisdom seems to be and and you've got it this a bit, but I just want to make sure that you don't have anything else to add. The conventional wisdom seems to be here that for the most part, Asian American voters are concerned about public safety, especially we've seen this spike in um, you know horrific attacks on certain individual Asian Americans the pushing of Michelle Go in front of a subway train, for example, and others, an overall rise in hate crimes against Asian New Yorkers, um, public safety paramount and education paramount. And those are really, and within those, there's, there's specific instances, specific trends, specific policies, but that those are really at the top of the list. You bring in some other things related to uh, health and mental health and, and more poverty. Um, so, so how, how how should we be thinking about this hierarchy of needs and concerns? There's a lot of discussion, as I said, that really the top two things that were driving Asian American voters away from Democrats towards Republicans are issues with public safety and education policies. Is it more complicated than that? Yeah, I think it's a lot more complicated. And the reason why I won in a district with 500 votes where these elder won by 500 votes is because we, you know, I took the time to really hone in on uh, the struggling working Asian uh, constituents in our, in our district. Uh, specifically, I'm talking about people who work in community and home care. These are home care workers, hundreds, if not thousands of them that have been abused um, in, in the workforce, have their wages stolen for years and left behind by the very progressive liberal democratic establishments that were that were in that were set up to protect their workers' rights, but they've been neglected. Uh, they've been left out. They feel like they're at the bottom of the hierarchy where their workers' rights and needs are not being heard. So we so our response to the public, larger public safety concerns is let's secure more contracts for the largest nonprofits who are abusing our Asian American workers in our communities. That is no longer going to work anymore. People are fed up. People are seeing through how the system is not serving and protecting workers' rights, and they're pushing back. And there's and they don't they don't feel like they have a home. It's not like they're aligned with Republicans. They just don't have a home where their needs uh, as as workers and or working class families uh, are not met. And it's a lot more complicated than just um, 
you know, education policies and, and putting more cops in subways. Because Asian Americans are, when you actually sit down with the workers, they're very uh, knowledgeable about how to approach community safety. They, they don't think, you know, just locking up anyone that looks dangerous is going to be the solution. They understand the importance of mental health intervention, um, housing, jobs, all the solutions that's required, but they also see that when our own government can't even take protect their own basic needs as workers, how will they? How do they have the capacity to create the jobs and housing and the social needs? So naturally, they 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 don't have a choice but to submit to some of the fear mongering around policing because they for for today and tomorrow they want to walk around feeling safe, and that's where the Republicans have done a better job in honing on in the immediate. Uh, knee-jerk reactions that are emotionally compelling for Asian Americans who live in fear. Mm. On public safety, um, are there things that you were saying in your campaign that were different from what Governor Hochul was saying in her campaign? Are there ways that you're talking about public safety to voters um, You know that you think resonate? Was this a matter of, as many people have said, basically just a lack of effort from the state Democratic Party and the governor's campaign to not really spend more time in communities to try to win those votes by saying, hey, here's what we're actually doing. Here's what we're going to start to do differently. But here's a lot of what we've put in place. Here's funding we've allocated. Here's policies we have in place. I'm not uh, I'm not moving at all to do away with the current admission system to the specialized high schools, but bringing in those community specific messages is it saying different things was your is your diagnosis that you know candidates like yourself you have more ties in the community you're able to uh sort of eke out a win despite the broader trends towards republicans but that the state party the governor's campaign were basically mia yeah i think the democratic party and and the governor's people were more concerned about larger narratives and protecting the larger industries, including uh, the employers um, that are conducting some of the abuse of Asian workers in our own communities. Instead of siding with the workers, they stayed out of it. And time after time, uh, over the last many months, uh, we try hard to engage them that this is the way to earn the trust of Asian communities. You go in, you listen to the people who are struggling or in the most pain and trauma in our communities and center solutions around them. No one, it doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, everyone in my community is against wage theft. It's against uh, unfairness toward especially workers who are putting in 24-hour shifts, doing the hard work to uplift our economy. They understand the value of home and community care. This could have been an easy win for the governor, for the state, for the Democratic Party to come in and say something is not working here and we're going to center solutions around your needs. Uh, and, and that's the formula that we took. And that's the conversation that I recently actually had uh, with Jay Jack Jacobs after the elections. Um, I sat down with them and, you know, instead of pointing fingers, I wanted to be productive and asked them to come in and sit down with these workers and start changing the narrative around what it means to what it, what it means to feel economically and physically safe uh, in our communities. Jay Jacobs, of course, the current chair of the state Democratic Party. He's uh, from Nassau County, where he also leads the county Democratic Party there. 
Uh, as you say, and I said in the intro, there are a lot of fingers being pointed at Jay Jacobs for underperformance of Democrats in New York, uh, a lot of calls for him to go as state party chair. Um, so say a little bit more about that discussion. You brought Jay Jacobs in and you are maintaining this focus that you're talking about that's sort of an economic equity, a social equity, an economic uh, a different kind of sort of economic populism message of paying more attention to workers. You have a viewpoint around more socioeconomic equity. And as you're getting at, uh, you've been very critical of what you and others have called the nonprofit industrial complex. You're, you're saying a progressive vision of government that would speak to more Asian American voters, but also others and be more effective uh, is expand what government itself can do and not just continuously contract out more and more and spend more and more money on uh, nonprofit providers that are not necessarily getting the oversight they need and so forth, wage theft and other issues that you're talking about. Um, so say, say a little bit more about the meeting with Jay Jacobs and then a little bit more broadly about your perspective on where the Democratic Party needs to go on this issue of what uh, what go progressive government looks like. Yeah, I, I spoke to Jay Jacobs about the need to fill the gaps uh, for underserved communities like Asian, the growing Asian communities and the many minority and marginalized communities that, that were here before us. Uh, this is a pattern that we've seen over and over. The more urban, the more demands for social services, the more government tends to contract things out without taking the responsibility of public, of public administrations that actually serve the public. Um, it's much easier uh, for Democrats to give 10, 20, 100 millions of dollars and celebrate that in a ribbon cutting because it absolves us as politicians to actually not just pass legislation, but administer and guarantee those legislation through government agencies. We stopped doing that as a state for many decades now. We don't even know what what administrative capacity looks like anymore uh, because we're so accustomed to just outsourcing and, and contracting things out. And Asian Americans um, and Asian American community could be the critical point where we can start reversing this trend. Um, this is a trend that has gone back to 1940s and, and 50s where urban America had outsourced um, services for black and brown communities for decades without actually solving the root causes of declining social conditions. Nonprofit outcomes does not equal um, resolving social problems. Only government and an active municipal state and state government can resolve social uh, declining social conditions. And the Democratic Party has to wake up. And this is the conversation that I had with Jay Jacobs. And we can start by coming in and, and understanding that something is broken in our home and community care and get and, and, and push the government to get back into the business of care. Mm. What else is um what else is on the list there? You know, there's a lot of um questions about economic empowerment, about adult literacy services, about um health care more broadly and and not only uh, the provision of health care but also career pathways into into the growing healthcare industry technology uh obviously education what other issues or sort of sectors do you think 
um, Democrats and, and that you'll be pushing when you get go back to Albany in the new session need to really focus on to speak more to Asian American communities in New York. Yeah, as I said earlier, older um, Asian immigrants um, and age and the Asian workers who take care of them are feeling the most pain in our community. They're feeling the most they're feeling most unsafe and and physically and economically unsafe. And they're waking up to the reality that that these government contracted nonprofits do not keep our community safe. You know, why why is it, Ben, when when there's indisputable evidence of rampant wage theft and worker abuse by one of the largest Asian American nonprofits in the country, uh, the Chinese American Planning Council, of the progressives and socialists, socialist establishments look the other way. You know, because because I think there our movements are intricately tied to to the nonprofit industrial complex that exists to undermine. Um, government administrations in order to, at the end of the day, privatize uh, public services. So in the Asian community, um, groups like CPC is a monopsony that also monopolizes all contracts to serve children, disabled, and older adults. Um, More than 95% of the revenues, roughly $250 million, come from government contracts. Now, creating new sectors you know, this is all part of actually the Green New Deal and, and what AOC actually laid out. That it has to start with local you know, care work um, and really treating community care work as, as a capital infrastructure project. Uh, they call it the care infrastructure. But what does that mean besides just words? So we need to put in the ground up work to activate local county and state governments to create new sectors around um, care and community care. And, and I think that's something that could uh, be very meaningful, not just for creating new sectors for the community, but actually doing a tremendous public service uh, for the for the growing older populations for Asian Americans and beyond. Now, as you bring up uh, the Chinese American Planning Council, you've uh, been in now in, in a something of a long running back and forth with them. Uh, you issued a report, uh, very, very critical. There's been pushback. Um, what exactly are you, are you looking to see change? Is there any way to bridge this uh, immense divide between you and this organization and the the sort of policy outcomes here? There's obviously questions about um, the state ending the uh, you know 24 hour uh, care uh, shifts. Um, the, you know, there's a, there's a lot of specific sort of policies involved, uh, patients, you know, patients bill of rights type of thing and workers bill of rights type of thing and, and regulation of home care. Um, where, where can this go to get to resolution? Are there specific pieces of legislation that you're hopeful the governor and the state legislature will, will move into law in the coming year? Yeah, I think unless we refocus on rebuilding our state and local administrative capacity uh, to deliver public services and treat care work, home and community care as a public service, we're left, uh, just like with other you know nursing homes, other long-term care facility types, we're left with the contract model and constantly trying to catch up and regulate um, the industry from not exploiting and not committing fraud. Um, but when there's rampant uh, 
cases of both fraud and worker exploitation. Um, I think the, the the first and immediate thing is, is we need to call it out and not not cover them, not cover up their messes. So we need to be honest about what how much they stole in wages. Um, and 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 the left and the progressives have to call this out. Um, and and start really understanding. Okay, well, it's not. Like in the, in the, I'm not trying to vilify individuals because we have friends that who work in CPC, but as institutions, like how do we get here, and who's responsible, and what, and how do we actually start financing home and community care, which in itself is what we call a um, Medicaid waiver program, which means it's not an entitlement program. So. There's always a, there was a built-in deficit from the moment it was started, Home and Community in 1983, when through Medicaid waivers, where we had a shortage of funding to fully meet the needs of people who need it. Um, so, but some states seize the moment to insource it and created local authorities, local government authorities, like in California, to set up structures so we can actually protect the workers and find out find local ways to finance home care. Other, other states like New York, we decided to contract everything out because it was just too cumbersome for us to step in and help finance home care. Now is the time to admit that we made mistakes um, and get back into the business of financing home and community care so we can actually make the sector work. Let me come back to uh, a couple of these other things we've been discussing here. When you um, have been on the on the campaign trail in this election and public safety comes up, what are you hearing from um, Asian American voters in the Flushing area and beyond if you're outside of your district? Um, what are you hearing in terms of what people want in order to feel and be safe? Uh, Republicans clearly made bail reform sort of synonymous with the rise in, in crime and the messaging on that from Republicans before bail bail reforms even um, even were enacted, once they were passed or even as they were being passed, they were being tied to a predicted increase in crime. Uh, crime wound up increasing and, and the, the narrative was just there. And they hit that home to a remarkable degree that for so many in New York, uh, people just associated the increase in crime that was obviously uh, very much uh, correlated with with the pandemic and the disruptions to society, but also a variety of uh, criminal justice policies, both in the New York City uh, government and the state government, uh, but became uh, basically synonymous, a message that was repeatedly hit home while Democrats had either no message or a, a very... Uh, murky message on public safety. Were you hearing basically from Asian American voters uh, that they were convinced the problem is bail reform um, and you were trying to talk them out of that viewpoint and and point to other things? What what are you what were you hearing from Asian American voters on the issue of public safety about what they thought the problem was and what they wanted the solutions to be? And what's your message around those direct public safety policies? I mean, I think I think there were uh, uh, there was a whole range of feedbacks from so many Asian voters, but yes, public safety um, from students in my district that are riding the subways to go to school in the city uh, every night uh, to older adults that are no that are afraid to go shopping anymore without somebody going with them. 
um, is at the top of the list. And they're not pinpointing to one exact thing. Uh, and bail reform surprisingly hasn't come up as often among the among the Asian Americans. But what has come up um, is the homelessness issue because it's much more visible. And they're correlating the uptick of uh, violent behavior uh, with um, homeless uh, individuals who need mental health counseling uh, that are living uh, on the streets and around us, which which is much more visible now than before. So and and, and listen, you know, a couple yeah. of the most horrific examples of murders of Asian American New Yorkers occurred in those very situations. So that 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 makes a lot of sense in terms of what's seeping into the 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 psyche and the visible uh nature of of how asian american voters would be thinking right correct so mm-hmm. when um asian americans for equality afi they wanted to um they're they're moving forward with the transition of housing the entire community was up in arms because they thought that this was going to be a homeless shelter and they were protesting for months even though it was a transition of housing for domestic violence uh, families, people with children, um, but anything that's even remotely close to homeless shelters, uh, they're just afraid that it's going to bring, it's going to attract uh, violent offenders who are not being taken care of. Uh, which is why um, yesterday, you know, I stood with the mayor, uh, I met with the mayor privately as well uh, as he rolled out his uh, administrative and clinical capacity building to deal with uh, the homeless and the mentally ill. Um, in our communities. So, you know, this, and that's also a promise that I made to Michelle Goh's father when I had dinner with him um, many months ago, that he wasn't as concerned about holding the attacker uh, accountable or punishing the attacker as much as holding us accountable for why we dropped the ball uh, when there could have been multiple points where we could have intervened um, and helped this person out. And and that's what he's seeking. And I made a promise to him that we're going to go back and connect these dots and figure out where we're failing um, as a city and state and do our part to administratively uh, fix this not, and not just punt it um, to nonprofits uh, like we've always done. You know, understanding some of those connections, it, it wasn't a shock to me to see you uh, at City Hall with the mayor as he un- unveiled this new plan around um, – protocols and a legislative agenda and more as you're getting at around more treatment and more focus on people with untreated severe mental illness. Um, But I was a little bit a little bit surprised to see you there, um, given some of your different perspective from the mayor on on some, you know, criminal justice and and other issues. Um, say, Say a little bit more about what you hope comes from this and anything that you're maybe a little bit worried about that you don't want to see come from this. You know, we've seen um, you know, a number of, of progressive uh, elected officials and some advocacy groups expressed some real concerns about this new plan, particularly the part where the mayor says there's going to be a real focus on, if necessary, involuntary transport of individuals to hospitals for psychiatric evaluations if people seem to be a danger to themselves or, of course, others, but a danger to themselves based on this sort of lower bar of unable to meet their own basic needs. And that could be something, you know, as simple as walking around in the subways without shoes on or seeming to not have showered in a number of days or things of that nature. And so there's concerns here, as I'm sure you've reckoned with, 
So what are you most hopeful about out of this? And what are you um, perhaps a little bit concerned about? Well, I think I think I'm most hopeful because for the first time um, since I've been a public servant, um, we had any executive that is willing to activate the city's workforce. I'm not just talking about cops. You know, I'm talking about uh, healthcare, uh, mental health clinics, clinicians, uh, to social service workers, the entire city workforce. And as you saw yesterday, and every commissioner that intersected with this plan was sitting with, uh, was standing with us to really build up the capacity because it's nonprofits and third parties can't resolve homelessness crisis or mental health crisis. It will take integrated government services to step in and deliver guaranteed and rights uh, for these individuals. Third parties can't guarantee these rights. And I'm excited to see what this looks like with the nonprofit advocates being there to check the mayor uh, and the administration if they're going out of bounds. And, you know, like you said, unnecessarily punishing people when they haven't been a threat to anyone, including themselves. I think there could be a balance where everyone can have, so everyone could have a role, but there are clear cases like with Michelle Goh's um, attacker where that person had housing, that person had what nonprofits wanted, but for whatever reason, uh, he wasn't living in the reality uh, like everyone else. And if there were better mechanics in place to Inter intersect uh, while giving him the due process, right? So this isn't just about a zero sum, take away the person like the squeezy man, the Giuliani years, we're just locking people away. We're not locking people away. That's what the, that's not what the mayor is saying. It is, there will be due process from the point of removal to a hospital to when they see a professional um, to multiple points and where they can prove that they're capable of uh, of you know, being free and, and just living their everyday lives. But if not, you know, there has to be a mechanism to treat them before they're triggered on the streets and uh, act violently against others. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the rub is going to come in those instances where people are declining to, um, you know, go with outreach workers or police officers or other first responders. And there's this tension over involuntary transport and evaluation and what inevitably when those instances lead to physical encounters on a subway platform or um you know violence in in various directions during an arrest um you know th those are going to be the incidents and and we're going to see those obviously on cell phone videos and that's where you know clearly the number and frequency of those is going to i think determine a lot about you know how the public sort of receives this effort um but you know uh, clearly, uh, there's been more that's needed to be done by government to to address these challenges. I wonder how you're thinking about the state legislative agenda that the mayor laid out, if there's any pieces of it that you're opposed to, um, and if there's anything on the state level here on this issue. We just reported at Gotham Gazette the other day, not not right before the mayor's announcement, but not knowing that it was coming, that the state money to bring back into service over 1,000 psychiatric beds that were taken offline to address the COVID emergency. The state money allocated in the budget in April has been very slow to be spent to bring those beds back online. Only about 200 of the 1,050 promised have been brought back into service in the, in the seven plus months since. So it seems like, as you're getting at, there's some real 
capacity administrative execution issues that perhaps are, you know, need to be at the top of the list for, you know, sort of state legislative oversight and so forth. Yeah. And I think the mayor was right to um, not to call out the governor, but, you know, bring her in as a partner to meet the needs of the administrative capacity building. Uh, and that's what the executive should be doing. They, you know, especially a city workforce that have been depleted of public employees. I think there's like a 20,000 lossage of, of social yeah. workers um, for many years. Like this is a serious crisis. And and obviously, you know, many, many progressives won't even talk about that because, you know, they're again, they're integrated with the nonprofits um, that are benefiting from that deficit because our city budget hasn't declined because we lost city employees. We've just contracted everything out without any oversight. So I, I'm not, I'm, and again, I'm not trying to pick fights with my my friends in the nonprofit sector. I think everyone has a role uh, to moving forward. What I'm cha- I'm challenging um, the nonprofit, you know, professionals to you know, to to achieve the end goal of why you joined the public service in the first place, which is to solve the root causes of social problems, and to do that. You know, we have to, we can't just focus on outcomes anymore. We need to work with the municipal and state governments uh, to to get to uh, fixing the, the core problems that we are all facing. Now, listen, as I'm sure you know, when people hear you speak about, uh, you know, sort of uh, addressing capacity issues and administrative capability in government, um, you know, one of the first things that people will say is, well, government doesn't seem to be very good at a lot of this either. You know that that, that government isn't necessarily, and the stuff that government is well funded on and you know well staffed in. There have been lots of issues with execution, implementation. There's just not enough accountability. Um, what what's your response to that? You know, you want to move um, move a lot of what's being contracted out to to nonprofit providers back into government. Um, how do you how do you ensure that government performance is better? What does that what does that take? And as a yeah. as a legislator, you know how do you, yeah how do you think about that oversight work? Yeah, we 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 didn't get to this point overnight. It took it took decades of uh, many different narratives to set in to condition us to think that all governments function like the DMV and you know how how you know we vilify the MTA NYCHA. That's all we do these days, but. It wasn't always like this. There was a time in this country when, you know, FDR, Woodrow Wilson built the power authority, built the poor authority to finance bridges. And and I and I hate to say it, and and, and I credit is due, credit is due. The former governor, when he came to infrastructure projects like the, you know, the LaGuardia and other capital projects, he, he showed us that what government could do if you focus on activating the right players and getting the stuff done. If you only apply that to healthcare and and people, you know, vulnerable people, I think he, I think it would have he would have had a much different outcome. But he completely, you know, privatized the Department of Health while focusing on infrastructure projects. So there are cases and there are examples of what government could do, and we should highlight those wins and transition those wins into the failing spaces where the private markets are failing the public. We're speaking here with Assemblymember Ron Kim, who represents District 40 based in Queens, uh, especially particularly Flushing, um, talking about 
the results of the 2022 elections, which saw further movement of Asian American voters in New York City away from Democrats towards Republicans, talking about that trend and much more. Just a, a couple more minutes here, Assemblymember Kim, and, and thanks for all the time. Um, coming back to education, are you urging um, Democrats to make more clear that some of these issues that are clearly front and center for Asian American communities, parents, families, students are part of the democratic agenda that's really hearing them and uh, responding to their needs that Mayor Adams has reversed Bill de Blasio's plans to replace gifted and talented programs with this sort of universal enrichment model that's been scrapped. The mayor is expanding the the sort of traditional GNT programs. So Democrats are sort of with you there. Um, uh, state level, there's really no movement on changing the law around admissions to the specialized high schools. Um, so we're with you there. It, it, does that just need to be sort of part of the Democratic platform here to not continue losing Asian American voters or on education issues? What is it? What does it need to be? Yeah. As you, I mean, I have three young daughters that are going to the same public school that I went to in Queens. You know, so I live this every day with other Asian families and parents. Um, and many of them are not 100 percent with GNT or, or or specialized test either. It's it's a again, it's complex, a lot more complicated than that. I think what they're mostly frustrated, which many other communities uh, an immigrant community to share is being a constant perpetual cycle of a rat race. You know, this is a this is a hyper competitive, you know, society that we're putting our kids in, and it, it's traumatic. It's stressful to the families, and there's no there's no opting out of it when you're living in New York City. Like you either have to do this to get into the Stuyvesant, get into the Bronx science, otherwise. You, you feel left out and you feel like you're not doing your best for your kids. So they're spending every dollar, working class families are spending every dollar in after school tutoring programs. They don't want to do that either, you know? So, but there is no alternative solution that the city is focusing on. And, but, and, and by just ripping everything apart without an alternative path to build better quality schools and more specialized schools for every, like we right. haven't done the investment in the front end and just ripping everything apart. So even though many Asian parents don't agree and feel frustrated being stuck in this perpetual rat race, they also feel like it's very unfair to just take everything out after they spend so much money to partake in the system that you, the government has designed for us. Yeah, I mean, former mayor de Blasio, acknowledged when his uh, effort to shift the specialized high school admissions process uh, failed, that he had not engaged the Asian American community enough. That was very clear. Obviously, same thing basically happened when he announced a plan to replace the gifted and talented program. And I'm making a special point to say replace, but everybody just says, scrap and end his plan was to replace but nobody knows that because he didn't actually go out and talk about it and really you know quote unquote sell it and and try to as you're getting at make clear to asian american and other families like here's how we're helping you get out of this rat race here's how we're helping get out of the scarcity mentality and making sure that there's still a lot of quality education and here's what it's going to look like there was just very little of that and so we can we can obviously recriminate the de Blasio years all day long, but but to your point, it is often not quite as simple as just 
the policy. It's about having the discussions and coming to, you know, community solutions. But I don't know, you know, on some of these policies, there, there's always a line in the sand, right? And, and, and clearly, you know, voters have been have been voting on these on these issues. Um, are there divides clear? Are there clear divides within this broader umbrella of Asian American voters that are clear to you? You're the first Korean American ever elected to the New York State Legislature. Most of the time, because of size of population, you know, we we are often talking about Chinese American voters, but just you know, using this blanket term, Asian American. Are there any different different community divides? Are there ways in which you, as a Korean American official, are finding any challenges speaking with your Chinese American constituents? Are they looking to alternative candidates as you faced in this election? Um, as far as far as much as you're you're familiar with the Asian American communities that are largest in Sunset Park and Bensonhurst and other places that have been so decisive in some of these elections, are there nuances that we should really be thinking about here? Yeah, it's a it's a it's interesting and fascinating question. It's something that I reflect on uh, for many years, even before I enter politics, the Asian American demographic trends. Um, and in Flushing alone, you know, the first wave of Asian Americans were, I think, Japanese and Hong Kong Asian Americans that came to Flushing, and then the Koreans. Uh, and now we're seeing a tremendous inflow of mainland Chinese. And every new wave of immigrants have different uh, philosophies, ideologies, beliefs. So it's hard to just stereotype and categorize everyone as believing one set of values. Um, the mainland Chinese, I would say, are much more. Um, have a taken a more dominating position on many issues. Like case in point, when Korean nail salons and grocers were at conflict with the black community, like I've intervened many times in my last 10 years, whether from Brooklyn uh, to local communities. And we've always tried to broker a compromise where both sides could have a win-win outcome. And we brought we brought the people who were wronged uh, from the black community with the small business owners, set them down, and everyone walked away feeling like, okay, well, we can work this out together. Some of the newer immigrant communities, they're taking a no compromise, like I'm gonna go get a gun and show how tough I am uh, approach, which is very um, dangerous. And so we're seeing a different element of Asians that are coming in um, that are more aligned with the mega Trumpian kind of rhetoric where they feel like they're they're in a more powerful position because of the economic success maybe they've had or they they feel like they belong in uh, in, in a more superior uh, class and that is causing a lot of rift and tension even inside our communities because so many Asian Americans for decades have invested in solidarity building and 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 creating you know efforts to to help other communities of color when they're in crisis but we have a new wave uh that don't recognize any of the work we've done and they just want to feel like they're winning in this perpetual rat race well a lot more to to discuss clearly there but but uh interesting thoughts on that um in our final moments here just as we wrap up uh, on this theme of um, Asian American voters and a shift from Democrats to Republicans here, 
just to sum up or or add any other additional thoughts that we didn't get to, the 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 sort of top keys that you want to leave people with in terms of what you think Democrats should be doing from the governor to the mayor to city council members. You know, we have city council elections coming up very quickly here uh, with new lines uh, after redistricting, including another new based on demographic population trends seen in the census, another new Asian opportunity district in the city council coming in Brooklyn, just like uh, very similar to what we saw with the state Senate district that I mentioned, uh, 17th. And we have a news story at Gotham Gazette about a lot of the details of what happened in the 17th state Senate district race in Brooklyn. Uh, But there's new elections coming up in 2023 for city council. The governor has won this new term. You're going back to Albany with a lot of colleagues. The mayor is uh, just sort of getting settled here in his final year. Um, But what would you say to to your fellow Democratic leaders in terms of uh, the the top takeaways here and the the final thoughts on what Democrats should be doing differently to make sure that Asian American voters are not leaving the party uh, in a continued trend? Um, No matter how uncomfortable the conversation or confusing it might be politically. A Democrats has to come in, sit down with the people that are struggling the most, and that involves working class Asians that may not show up to Albany, they may not show up the steps of City Hall because they're busy working, but take the time to come into the districts and listen to their plights. And you're going to see a whole different perspective that you can't get from poll data and, and start centering solutions around their needs. And I think if Jay Jacob was serious about taking on that offer, I my take my office is always open to host him uh, for such a meeting uh, in the future. All right, we will leave it there. Uh, Asian Americans in New York City, a fastest growing demographic group, as we saw from the census, and that impacted those lines for state legislative seats and the city council that I was just talking about, and the electoral trends we've seen over these last few election cycles. A lot to reckon with there. Assemblymember Ron Kim represents the 40th Assembly District based in Queens, particularly in Flushing. Assemblymember Kim, thanks for taking all this time and, and having this conversation, and, and we'll check in in the, in the future. Great. Thanks, Ben. Good to see you. 